Each election cycle, experts appear in the news talking about polling data. Many of these experts are political scientists and are often the only contact audiences may have with political scientists. While polling research is important to the field, there are other kinds of quantitative research in political science that can get overlooked. We learn about some of them today on this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me, as always, is regular panelist John Baylor, Emeritus Professor of Statistics at Miami University. Our guest today is Kevin Reining, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Miami University. Reining's work focuses on political parties and social movements in the United States and takes a particular interest in how political activity can be measured and quantified. He also maintains a website mapping union elections in the United States. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me here. So we are a few weeks away from the midterm elections as we are recording this episode. And uh, I turned on the news this weekend, and there was a lot of discussion of polling data. Um, what is something happening in the in your field that people should be paying more attention to, and journalists should be covering more closely? It's interesting, especially the journalists covering more closely aspect of that question, because when it when it comes at least to to elections, let's just stay there for now. A lot of political science research is about the fundamentals of the country, of um, the sort of like the economy, things like that, and how that informs who actually wins and who actually loses. And so there's sort of like, I don't want to say two paradigms, but like two ways of thinking about elections. One is focusing on polls and like who's up and who's down. And the other one is focusing on this fundamentals aspect. And you can see like 538 and some of the other ones will include this information in there. But for a lot of political scientists, I think the daily polling is not that interesting just because there's a lot of variation in it. You know, one one example of like that, and partially because this is so difficult to do, one thing that we know is a real problem with polling is non-response bias. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know this this is kind of going back to polling, so let's let's stay there for a second, then we'll move on to something else. But non-response bias is, you know, the fact that people don't respond to polls, right? Which is a problem in general because no one answers their phones anymore. But there is also some really interesting research showing that when your candidate's doing worse, you become less likely to answer the phone. Oh. Yeah. And so it, it can create this like perception that things are moving even more than they are because, you know, most people, they're diehard Democrats, diehard Republicans, they're not going to change their mind. But their candidate's doing poorly, they're not going to talk to a survey researcher. And that's going to make the election look much more volatile than it actually is. And so like sometimes people think that I spend all my day on like 538 or all these other ones, and I... I some friends and I will occasionally talk about it, but it's not its not commonplace discussion. Mm-hmm. I, I find that really an, an interesting distinction that you're, you're raising there, the distinction between the fundamentals of how the, this political process works, which is the you know, your field of inquiry, versus the, the way we're encountering it in public life, you know, that we're encountering the political process it's, as a horse race. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, you, you want, it, they're nose to nose, you know, we're, we're heading around the final, the, the final bend towards the finish. And, and there's this drama associated with these daily volatile numbers versus kind of this background structure. Can, can you talk a little bit more about some of the other foundational ideas that a political scientist might be interested in investigating? 
It's hard to answer that question really simply because in reality, political science is sort of related fields together. So I do American politics mainly. I study what happens in the U.S. generally. But political science itself has, you know, also international relations, which is studying how countries interact with each other mainly, wars, international organizations, things like that. And then there's also um, people who do comparative politics, which there's always a discussion, is American politics just part of comparative politics? But, you know, the name kind of gives it away that comparative politics is all about comparing countries. So it's looking at, you know, like I had a master's student last semester or last year who looked at welfare programs in different countries mm. and how that was related to happiness, you know, mm. happiness mm. outcomes. So it's hard to say, like, in general, like the foundational things in political science. So let's, let's stick to the foundational things in American politics then, at least. And we can even kind of keep it back towards sort of like elections and political participation because that's what I do do best. And and I think one thing that we need to keep in mind and like it's a fundamental understanding is that there's a lot of variation in how much people participate in politics. Mm. And that variation is linked to a lot of other attributes, right? So the rich people with more income, more education, they tend to participate a lot more in politics than those who are low education, low income. And these things have also changed over time too. So for example, there's been a growing, you know, we, we talk a lot about polarization in this country, so meaning that, like, the parties are moving further apart or that people are becoming more entrenched in their party, and that's happening. But another part or, but part of that is a middle group that's kind of opted out of politics because mm. uh, it's a lot of anger, a lot of, you know, frustration, and you don't ch- see a lot of change. And so if your choices are between being involved in political, being involved in politics and watching, you know, sports or TV or whatever... It's easier to do the latter. You brought up this issue of participation, though, and I wonder, how do you define participation and how do you measure it? Yeah, I actually do an activity, one of the activities with my students where we do, um, in my applied research methods class, is trying to figure out how we conceptualize and then operationalize, so actually quantify uh, complex things. I use example of political participation. There's a lot of different ways to participate. There's voting, which is what we generally think of. There's also calling elected officials, uh, writing letters to the editor, um, going out to a protest. And then the added sort of component is that some of those things matter more. And also some people we think matter more, I should say. And some people like can't do some of them. Like if you're 17 years old, you can't vote. So are all 17 year olds then less politically active? Maybe, but like voting is a pretty minor form of political activity. And I would think if you are spending all day volunteering on a campaign, which some 17-year-olds do, and then just can't vote, you're probably more politically active than someone who just votes, right? Um, So what we often do is instead of talking about political participation in general, we focus on particular aspects of it. We talk about who goes to a protest or who goes and votes, because those are, I think, more interesting questions because they're more specific. Um, we know they're all linked together, right? Like, if you vote, you're more likely to do all these other things and so on. But when we're doing, you know, specific research, we rarely talk about political participation in general and instead focus in on one part of that. Mm-hmm. You know, so Rosemary started with, with comments about kind of observing the the, the the flood of polls at this time as we're heading into these midterm elections, into these elections. And, you know, I, I, I found that, you know, I was, I was at, you know, at, at the gym and looking at, at kind of watching the screens of, of just alternating attack ads 
seemed to be the the diet. The the news, particularly during news broadcasts, seems to be there. I was I, fortunately I didn't have the sound on, so I didn't have to, to to endure them other than occasional viewing it. So so my my question is, you know, we we certainly have seen an expansion of this type of of campaign mechanism, and you know, does it work? It depends. Which is, <laughs> that's, that's a typically a, st- a statistician's answer. Wait, wait. <laughs> and it's often the answer I give my students, which they, I yeah. think, don't like because life yeah. is complicated. Yes, that, amen. Because there's actually there's kind of multiple parts to a campaign. And so what we're seeing generally now are more of the persuasion areas of campaigns. So mm. at this point, campaigns have ideas of who you know, are their diehard supporters, who is in the middle, and they've probably tested tested, I'm using air quotes here, you can't say, different messages. The extent that those sorts of persuasion messages to get people to support uh, one candidate or the other work, it's hard to know for certain which one works well. I should say that. Some of them definitely work. And there's often like research afterwards, you know, there's some really interesting stuff coming out of UCLA, I think, right now, where they've looked at lots and lots of campaign ads got people to watch them, they found that there definitely are some that work. But knowing what's going to work ahead of time is really hard to do. Campaigns will do these things where they do surveys with people and they'll ask them a a question that I actually really despise, which they'll give someone like, Dr. Pennington is um, a horrible person who hates puppies. Would you, uh, does this information make you more or less likely to support Dr. Pennington? And then they'll use the responses to that. They'll ask a variety of different things. They'll say also, like, Dr. Pennington's a wonderful human being. Um, she's only ever petted pu- puppies and done nothing else. Does that make you more or less likely to support them? And they do that to figure out their messaging. And what political science, I think, has come to accept is that that way of doing that is really kind of pointless. And instead, you've got to do full-on experiments where you're giving people mm-hmm. different different treatments and you're seeing then asking them not, does this make you more or less likely? You're asking them instead just, do you support this person? Um, because we're really bad as humans at fit of saying what's going to make us more or less likely to support someone. Has there something been something that's emerged that feels like a useful, persuasive approach? You know, in communication studies, we often talk about emotion and how emotion is the thing that can trigger people to do things. Like if, if you give them something that makes them angry um, or frustrated, they often will act on it. If it, they're happy, they won't. Like anger is a, a motivating emotion in a lot of communication studies. And I wonder if there's anything that's emerged in political science that's been shown to be pr- a pretty persuasive approach. Yes. But and, and this this goes off what you're saying with the with the anger. Uh, I feel like framing it like making it very persuasive kind of has almost like a positive tinge on it. And what I'm going to talk about is not necessarily positive. Um, what we know now, or what we've kind of identified as political scientists, is the importance or growing importance of what's called negative partisanship. So we we think of people as being partisans. You have an identity as a Democrat or Republican, um, and traditionally we thought of that as sort of like this is who I am. I am a Democrat or I am a Republican. It means X, Y, and Z. And research has pointed to the fact that, well, by defining myself as one thing, I'm also defining myself as what I'm not. So it's not just that I'm a Democrat, it's that I am not a Republican or I am a, you know, vice versa. And that ties back to persuasion because what we're seeing, and, you know, I don't think this will be surprising to people watching 
the ads that you're watching at the gym um, is that people respond a lot to sort of this negative partisan framing so that it's a lot easier to get people angry at the other side than to get them very supportive of the side that they're in, right? Because I mean, we're, we're seeing this, you know, to, to touch on at least some news, this in like um, Georgia right now with Herschel Walker. He's had lots of scandals at this point. Uh, and in the end of the day, though, he's probably not going to lose very much support because as much as some of his voters might not like the fact that they have to vote for someone who has, you know, paid for abortions or whatever, they'd much rather have Herschel Walker in there than a Democrat. Uh, and in the end, at least he's not a Democrat. And the same thing happens for Democrats as well. You know, I'm not going to pretend like there's a perfect equality across the political spectrum on this sort of like polarization aspect. But in general, a lot of negative partisanship is what drives people to support candidates and go vote. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Miami University political scientist Kevin Reining. Kevin, I know you've done some work on local political parties, um, and I wonder if you could talk about um, some research you've done specifically on Facebook and sort of how I think it's local Republicans were using the space. Well, and that's the interesting part. It's not necessarily about how they were using it, but how the space was kind of using them, so to speak. So. In the United States, again, there's local parties are often seen as a joke. I don't know if you've ever gone to a local Democrat or local Republican uh, meeting. It's usually uh, you know five people in a room who've known each other for the last 40 years. And historically, we've had what are referred to as weak political parties. And what we mean by that, because I'm seeing your face there, is they're organizationally weak. They don't have a lot of organization to them. But Myself and a few other colleagues were actually really interested in local parties, in part because this is a place where a lot of actually our students kind of get their first political involvement. It's one way they can get involved in politics. Um, literally, this project started uh, with a, a colleague, Lee Hanna at Wright State, who is their internship coordinator, and he had had trouble getting a hold of one of the local parties, I can't remember which, to place in, interns. And so this led to some... You know, Lee Hanna and Weitzel and I to be interested in just what our local parties doing. And so the first part of this was just collecting data on it. And there's 3,000 some counties in the United States. Most states have local parties at the county level, but not all because the United States is unique. Uh, so we collected uh, basically 3,000, um, all the social media and email addresses for as many of the counties as we could find. And one of the things we were interested in doing is just looking at what they're posting on social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, Facebook is obviously important in our politics right now. This was partially during COVID, though I think we might have started it pre-COVID. Time is hard. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Time has lost meaning over the last few years. Yeah. And so we were just interested in what they were doing. And one of the things that we found here was a really interesting trajectory uh, of what had happened over a relatively long time span on Facebook. Mm. Uh, So Facebook actually is relatively good relatively good about making data available for researchers. And we were looking at the response rates to Republicans and Democratic parties over time, going all back to 2016. What we had started doing was uh, a smaller project looking at just at a year. We presented this at a conference. One of the participants there said, you know, you have this data, you should really go further back. And so I did that a few weeks later. And what we found was that, you know, from 2016 to about 2018-ish, Democrats and Republicans had equal sort of responses to what they're posting on Facebook. Uh, they would 
a lot of them not get a lot of response, but they'd get equal number of likes, you know, shares, things like that. And then starting in 2018, there was this really marked change where Republican Party started getting a lot more attention on uh, Facebook. And so this kind of opened up a question about why that was happening. So what what changed? Well, you know, so the, the truth of the matter is I can't fully tell you what changed, right? Um, because we don't know Facebook. They're getting, again, slightly better even now. doesn't make available um, their their algorithm, though I did actually review a piece that got a lot of information about it, but it's not out yet, so I probably shouldn't talk about it. Um, so Facebook doesn't make a lot of their information available on this. But I had remembered that around that time period or after this time period, there's all this news that came out about Facebook having their changing their algorithm. Um, there was the Wall Street Journal had this great investigative reporting about Facebook realizing that when they changed their algorithm, it led to a lot more anger on their on their site. Um, and it was this whole back and forth that they did. And so what we what we did then is like, well, this kind of lines up with the time period we saw. But it could be other things. So we tried to generate a list of other possible things or ways we could sort of limit it down to being this. So one of the things we did is we had similar data for Twitter. And so we looked to see if we saw the same trend on Twitter, because it could just be that the parties are posting better. No change is really on Twitter, at least not in the same way. Um, so, okay, well, it has to be something on Facebook. Well, these parties are becoming on and off Facebook all the time because they're not that well organized. People literally forget their passwords, things like that. So we checked to see, like, did it have to do with how old or new the parties were? It didn't really matter. They all, all these Republican parties saw this, tr this trend. Um, and then we did some, some modeling to try to figure out if we could identify sort of like around specifically when um, this change had happened. Because, you know, you, you could see it in a graph. We want to know, like, is this talking about something more specific like the end of fall? And we were able to identify that it was, you know, basically August, September is when this real change happened in 2018. And that actually linked up really well with some of the stuff that came out from the Wall Street Journal. Mm. Uh, for example, there was a... a they had an email from a BuzzFeed editorial at the time being like, uh, stuff that doesn't go viral is starting to go viral now on your Facebook or stuff that we didn't used to see going viral is going extremely viral. And so all these things point to the fact that there was something about this change in the algorithm and something about Republicans pre-existing, you know, how they're posting on Facebook that led these Republican Party posts to become like shared much more widely on, widely on Facebook. And it happened for about a year. And again, what we can tell from all this information is that Facebook spent a lot of time tweaking their algorithm. And so after a while, it sort of settled back to normal. And so again, we, we can never say certainly like what happened here, but we can say is that there was this, you know, going from about being even to Republicans getting double the shares that Democrats were getting to then being about evenish again. And that lines up with this time period. You know, you, know, you, were, you were mentioning this, the idea of, of sampling and doing polling and you know, there's there's been this incredible change going from times when you could study a community using random digit dialing where everyone had an area code that lived in that area to now with cell phones, all bets are off. But but now, as, as you've talked about social media, you know, I, I wonder about kind of the, the impact on political science and on studying political processes that that social media has, whether whether it's the Facebook or Twitter or any other kind of outlet. Well, it's... So I think there's a couple of interesting answers to that. So one is that, you know, there's 
whenever something like new like this comes along, I think there's one set of questions that's sort of obvious, like how have things changed, sure. right? People interact politically on on Twitter. On in real life, how has this changed on Twitter and Facebook? And so, like that's an obvious one. But the other thing that that's sort of I don't know if more interesting is or it's more interesting to me is that one of the wonderful things about something like Twitter and Facebook is that it's led people to actually quantify things that they wouldn't normally have quantified, like their relationships, mm. right? You know, we are really interested in how connections matter. And sure, like a Facebook friend and a Twitter friend, like mutual follow. follow might not be the exact same thing as a real life friend, but we can get that data a whole lot easier. And so it's led to a lot of research on, you know, like these sort of following patterns or mm. friending patterns. Mm. Um, historically, Facebook's been less, you've been less harder to get personal data on Facebook. But for Twitter, like any researcher basically now can go and download anyone's tweets, publicly available tweets from going back since, you know, if you're an academic, you can go back as far as they have data. You can get their entire, like, network of who they're following and who they're not following. It's led to this plethora of research on these networks, though. As much as I think that's interesting, it has sometimes been hard to figure out, like, what this means in the broader scale, mm. right? Twitter is unique. Facebook is unique. That's actually one of the things in that, you know, that paper that we did that was a little bit different or a different paper associated with local parties is that, we collected Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram data, as well as website presence, too, for these local parties. And so we were able to look at one of the other papers is just, like, where are they actually online? And so we were looked to see if, like, are there differences across different, like, social medias, right? And, and we generally found that, you know, if a party's if, – if a party's more likely to be on Facebook, they're also more likely to be on Twitter and all these other things. So it's, it's, it's kind of reassuring that there isn't specializing in any way. Um, and maybe we can learn from one to take it to the other. But it, it is, you know, social media has led to some theoretical questions, given us a whole lot more data we can use. But it's it's not been as wonderful as we hoped because we still have to figure out, like, what what this all means in the end. Kevin, as you've been talking, you've been sort of providing a lot of caveats, you know, in this conversation, which I, not to say that it's a negative, but I wonder, like, you know, journalists can sometimes, well, do you have to simplify things, right? Like, that's part of the job is to simplify and understand and often don't have space for caveats. And I sort of wonder, as we are going into this midterm election, and then as soon as the midterm election is over, we're going to be in the run-up to that next general election, right? Because it just starts immediately. Sort of what advice would you give to people who are going to be covering news stories about elections to help them sort of perhaps produce more more nuanced reporting based on polling data or data like what you've produced uh, around various things? That's an interesting question. And so... And this is hard to say in this day and age, but things aren't going to change as much as anyone expects them to or anyone fears. I almost want to say hopefully at the end of that, assuming that all our democratic institutions remain, things won't change that much. Because in the end, when, when we talk about campaigns, you know, there, there's so much focus on like what candidates are promising uh, and how they're engaging with people. But in the end, they're one person among many that are making you know decisions. And as we've learned with, you know, Biden, Trump, Obama, and George W. Bush have all pushed the president to do more and more, but the president can only do so much in our system. Uh, and as long as we have the Senate as it is with, you know, basically needing 60 votes to do anything representing states, the Senate's not going to do that much. And so 
like I'm not saying all this is pointless because you know go vote. I, I'm going to vote. I think it's important to vote. I think it's important to be politically engaged. But the changes that are happening are going to be relatively minor. Uh, I, I was talking to my students about this actually a few weeks ago. Presidents really can do like one big thing um, in their four years. Biden might have actually gotten away with like one and a half things, which is interesting. <laughs> uh, but it's not as, you know, there's there's so much, I think, like wrapped around this because that's what campaigns need to do. They need to get people engaged. They need to get them to think like, oh, oh, we're going to go, you know, change the world because that's how you get people to be motivated. But at the end of the day, like that just isn't what usually happens. And then the other thing, and this is probably broader advice than just like, you know, campaigns, elections or politics, but the simple stories are often missing a whole lot, which again is something I think my students mm. find annoying about my classes. You know, <laughs> I, I, we talk about, I do a class on social movements and protests. Social movements are incredibly complex phenomena. There is no easy answer to why a protest appears when it does. Uh, we can point to certain factors, but I can tell you a lot of reasons why that factor isn't the only explanation. And so we often want to say like, well, this is the cause. There's often lots of causes. And we're going to see this after the election. What will probably happen is there will probably be some, some reports showing that this certain voter group didn't turn up in certain amounts and that that's why you know, Democrats or Republicans did better or worse. Right? If you cut the data enough, you can always find those demographic groups because you know, there's enough people, there's enough ways of cutting things, that there will be multiple ways that people didn't show up. And so... I would always think about like what what else could be causing what you're seeing whenever I'm talking about these things. Mm -hmm. What other factors might play into it that matter? That's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.